electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. And here's what's ahead, everybody. It is the valuation debate. With those new records Scott was just talking about, it's the NASDAQ, the NASDAQ 100. Oh, the tech ETF, the Internet ETF, the tech software ETF. Is this te- a whole sector getting too expensive? We're going to ask about valuations in tech. Plus, it's the balloon that just keeps growing. Rising corporate debt levels could become a threat to the global economy. We'll look at how big a threat and who's most at risk. And the real winner from the stay-at-home trade, game on for the MLB and Ivy League say goodbye to standardized testing. That's all ahead in rapid fire today. But we begin with the markets, and Dominic Chu is here with the numbers. I mean, you reeled off a list of so many ETFs and stocks, and Scott Wapner did as well. Who would have thought that three months after March 23rd, we'd be at record highs, Kelly? That's exactly what's happening right now. We'll put a star right off the bat for the NASDAQ and the NASDAQ 100. That up 1.5%. That's a new record high for that. The S&P 500 up about one percent right now. And the Dow Industrials were up about 290 points at the highs of the session. So we're kind of there still, though, generally a positive day for the markets. We'll see if that continued momentum picks up again. Now, speaking of technology, very much oriented towards that in today's trading. The biggest sector out there in the S&P, the tech sector ETF, the XLK, that's the ticker, the Dow Jones Internet ETF. Kelly mentioned that one as well. And then tech and software services ETF, that ticker IGV. I'm going to put all of these in this category because they have all at this point hit now record highs and look at just how far we've come from those COVID-19 lows a massive move higher that's a big V and then speaking of it's not just Microsoft and Apple and Amazon and all those names check out Adobe Nvidia PayPal Holdings ServiceNow all of these guys in the green and they are all Kelly at record highs by the way just for some perspective Kelly PayPal is now a $205 billion company. It makes it worth almost as much as Netflix, almost as much as Disney, and get this, twice as much as Boeing right now. Back over to wow, you. Wow, and we're going to have more on that next block. Dom, thanks very much. In the meantime, top health officials, including Dr. Fauci, were testifying on Capitol Hill, and it's still going on as the United States' response to the pandemic continues and cases continue to spike in more than half of all states. Meg Terrell joins me now with the latest and the headlines. Meg? Hey, Kelly. While these health officials and Dr. Fauci in particular really sounding the alarm on the trend they are starting to observe across the country with cases uh, and hospitalizations now rising across the South and the West. Take a listen to what Dr. Fauci had to say about that warning. We're now seeing a disturbing surge of infections that looks like it's a combination. But one of the things is an increase in community spread. And that's something that I'm really quite concerned about. 
And Dr. Fauci citing states like Florida, Arizona, Texas, saying they're not the only ones, though, while commending New York on the trends that it's starting to see. This is overall the country reporting 27,000 new cases yesterday, and that overall trend in the seven-day average ticking up again uh, now to uh, it's around 28,000 for the last week. The positive rate of tests, the number, the percent of tests uh, that are positive also starting to tick up past 5% now, according to Evercore ISI. Hospitalizations data also extremely concerning, especially in places like Texas. And the Texas Medical Center, which is in Houston, uh, reporting really concerning numbers uh, yesterday, uh, noting that the ICU capacity right now is headed for a trajectory where it may be overwhelmed within two weeks based on the data they are seeing now, Kelly. So these are really concerning early signs. And Dr. Fauci telling people they've got to start working on reversing them. Yeah, and we had spoken uh, with a hospital official in Texas a few weeks back, Meg, and they weren't sure exactly what was causing uh, the rise in cases. But if the ICU capacity starts to run out, I mean, that would be when you see officials respond more aggressively with shutdowns, I would think. And yet you look at the stock market and it doesn't seem to hint that anything like that is coming in terms of shutdowns. Yeah, I mean, remember the first time we went through this, it was so hard to believe that the economy was going to get shut down the way it was. I mean, perhaps we're in that same cycle or perhaps people believe that efforts will be taken to reverse this. Dr. Fauci calling on identification, isolation, tracing, those kinds of public health efforts need to be happening now to shut this down. Uh, But as we start to see those hospitalizations and ICU numbers rise, we're getting into territory where it will be too late, public health officials say. Oh, it's going to be an interesting couple weeks. Meg, thanks very much. Meg Terrell with the very latest there. And despite the rising COVID case count, as I mentioned, stocks are rallying once again, and we're hitting a lot of new highs. The Nasdaq setting another record high. It's on track for its eighth straight day of gains. By the way, the Nasdaq 100 is now trading at 28 times expected earnings. The S&P is around 22 times forward earnings for the next 12 months. Are these valuations too high? Joining me now, Ernesto Ramos is portfolio manager of the BMO Low Volatility Equity Fund. And Samir Samana is senior global market strategist at Wells Fargo Investment Institute. Welcome to you both. And Samir, I'll just begin with you. Why is it that markets don't seem more concerned about a potential um, squeeze on hospital capacity in, in some of the southern states? So, Kelly, we do think they are, they are concerned. And if you kind of look under the hood, um, if you look at kind of the sector behavior, what you're starting to see is a lot of the work-from-home plays um, are starting to do well again. So technology, um, communication services, healthcare is doing well, consumer discretionary, especially e-commerce. Um, and you're starting to see a little bit more of a fade in energy, materials, industrials. Um, so we think the market's kind of voting underneath the surface and it's going back to some of those growthy plays. Um, but at the top level, unfortunately, it's still a matter of where you're going to allocate your assets in very low yielding cash or fixed income. Or do you take a chance on some of these equity names that can continue to grow? That's a great point. So Ernesto, basically looking at all the tech outperformance through the lens of it being defensive against what could happen with the economy as the case count spreads is an interesting tack. Um, some of the names, Ernesto, that you like are also Kroger and Sprouts Farmers Market. I mean, do you see those as you know, long-term beneficiaries of the pandemic or is there something else going on there? Well, certainly short-term beneficiaries because uh, people are, are definitely buying more online and, and having things delivered. And, and this is actually a anti-cyclical uh, exposure because uh, they're not really... Uh, uh, dependent on economic, economic growth, which, as, as um, my colleague pointed out, is, is beginning to be impacted by the second wave. So 
we, we like the exposure to equities. We, we want to be exposed to equities, but we want to do so in a defensive way so that we have some downside protection in our fund. Samir, let's talk about valuations for a moment. You know, 28 times the NASDAQ, 122 times on the S&P. Do those worry you or is it common to see high valuations at these early points of the expansion? Sure. A couple a couple of great points that you, you made, and I'll kind of piggyback off those, right? So as earnings, you know, basically trough, which we see at the end of this year, um, you do see historically, you know, PEs tend to rise. So if, the, if you look at the 2000-2002 bottom or the 07-09 bottom, um, you do have PEs that tend to be kind of either mid to high 20s. Um, and this one is very much in line with that. So by the end of this year, we will be trading kind of in the high 20s. Um, and then as the earnings rebound next year, we think we'll probably see 145 next year as opposed to um, 115 this year, so pretty good bounce back in earnings. Now, it won't get back to 2019 levels. That PE should slowly start to filter back down. But it is very much worth noting that PEs will be supported by very low inflation, um, continued muddle-along growth, and then interest rates that are much lower than history, with the Fed you know, still talking about wanting to possibly um, do more at some point. Right. And I know you think we're generally going to be range bound between kind of 3000 and 3400 until we get more clarity on COVID, maybe in the fall, certainly with the vaccine. Ernesto, I'll turn to you. Same question about overall market valuation. Does it concern you and how would you be positioned? Well, it's certainly very sector dependent and, and uh, well, market overall. Go right ahead. Now, Ernesto, go ahead. I'm sorry. The, the earnings right. picture very muddled right now. The uh, the sound is, free, is freezing up on us somewhat. So I, I hate to stop and start like that. But uh, at least we got you. Like, you like Sprouts Farmers Market. You like Kroger. I know you like Newmont Corporation as well. Guys, thank you both. Uh, it's great to have you here today. Ernesto Ramos of Bino and Samir Samana of Wells Fargo. Appreciate it. Coming up, we are going to talk more about PayPal and Square. They are looking to cement their roles in the lending world through the PPP program. But as they face criticism over their cash hoarding practices, can they become a go-to lender for Main Street? And as corporate debt continues to soar, that could be creating big risks to future growth. We'll break that all down when the exchange continues. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Fintech companies like Square and PayPal are helping to get emergency government loans to small businesses. And we're starting to get a better idea of just how big a role they're playing. Kate Rooney joins me now with more. Kate? Hey, Kelly. According to some company data, Square and PayPal played a significant role in the Paycheck Protection Program. They focused on the smallest of PPP loans. Square Capital's average loan size, just $11,000. That's about a tenth of the size of the average SBA loan. 60% of those were new customers, and Square saying they did four and a half months worth of average loan volume in just six weeks. For PayPal, the majority of loans were under $25,000. They did nearly $2 billion in PPP loans. 
Analysts say the success there could bode well for demand in their lending businesses. Those at Guggenheim and Barclays both highlighting the non-bank's role in filling a so-called capital void. But Square today is in some hot water in its core payments business. The New York Times reporting a wave of unhappy customers due to its policy on reserves. Kelly. And it's because they are holding cash back, Kate, right? So they have exposure to people who make returns. And if their merchants, I think, have losses and they say, well, we need to hold money against that. We're going to hold your money against that. The Journal highlighted this last week, too. I mean, a lot of people say they couldn't do payroll because they couldn't access the funds that these companies were holding. Right. They're called rolling reserves. So they hold those for about four months. That money is set aside for things like chargebacks. And it's standard in the industry. But of course, it comes at a time when small businesses especially need money for things like payroll. They've gotten a lot of criticism and pushback. There's now a petition out there from Square Merchants asking them to get rid of the policy. So we'll see what happens there. Absolutely. Kate, thanks so much. Kate uh, Rooney with the very latest. And all this is happening as PayPal is hitting a new all-time high today, a $205 billion market cap, as Dominic Chu mentioned earlier. Square is only 1% away from its own record high. Both stocks have more than doubled in the past three months. For more on what's next, then let's bring in Lisa Ellis. She's a partner at Moffitt Nathanson. With a buy rating on both stocks, PayPal's the top pick with a 185 price target. Lisa, it's great to have you back. And I do want to start with this issue on the chargebacks is this different for fintech than for other payment processors? Um, yeah, it is. They play a unique uh, role. It's part of the value proposition of players like Square and PayPal is that they are able to offer these very, uh, you know, to payment processing to very small businesses, smaller ones than banks normally cover. And part of their value proposition is that they usually handle all of these chargebacks um, on behalf of their merchants uh, and, um the pandemic has just put them in a really unusual, obviously un- unprecedented, unanticipated situation with really high volumes of chargebacks, which has sort of put them in this awkward position of ending up changing their policies right at a very difficult time for a lot of these businesses um, where they're having to hold back because they are responsible for those chargebacks back to you know, Visa, MasterCard, and the issuing banks back in the payment system. Yeah, it's fascinating. So in a lot of these cases, for example, you know, you hired a photographer, but your wedding is canceled, so you might cancel that. And ironically, Square and PayPal sort of end up holding the bag and then holding back cash from their own customers uh, in order to cover those losses. One more question on this. If they were forced or chose to change this practice, would it fundamentally undermine their business model? Uh, no, it wouldn't. It would It would be, they would probably have to hold some reserves for that, you know, on their balance sheet. Um, uh, uh, but it would not change their business model. They would still be playing the role that they're playing, which is that they basically aggregate and share the risk uh, across all these micro merchants for things like chargebacks and other um, risk-related issues. That's a really core part of their value proposition. It's maybe one that you know, isn't as visible, but a critical to the underlying merchants, that would still be intact. The change would probably be more at, at their own financial level. They might have to do something like hold back, you know, or put on the balance sheet explicit reserves to kind of cover this if they ended up uh, uh, changing the policy back the other way. Yeah. So again, the stock not showing a terrible amount of concern, uh, kind of matching what you're describing. So PayPal is your top pick and you say you're only buy rated on five stocks total. Four out of the five of them are PayPal, Square, Visa and MasterCard. Um, so the, the thesis, the theme here is pretty clear. Why is PayPal number one and how much has the PPP program helped them with their business? Yeah, PayPal's number one because it is such a major beneficiary 
of the shift to e-commerce that's happening as a result of the pandemic. Um, they are seeing unbelievable record number new net users and volume growth because of people changing their behavior, shopping more online from spending three months in their houses. That's the real major driver. I mean, for example, they've done something like 15 million net new users just in April and May alone. Their largest full quarter ever prior to that was 10 million. Wow. So 50% higher in two months alone. Um, volume numbers up plus 40, 50%. I mean, and it's really this, I mean, we estimate they've pulled forward at least three to four years of e-commerce growth just in the first two months uh, related to the pandemic. The PPP loans um, are certainly a help mainly because it helps their brand um, with merchants, with small merchants that might be deciding, do I want to put PayPal on my website? Do I want to use PayPal as my payment processor? The fact that they've you know, stepped in and really helped a lot of small businesses that weren't getting access to PPP loans through their traditional bank certainly helps the brand uh, and, and, you know, just broadly helps, you know, their stature uh, with, with merchants, you know, and they need merchants to add the PayPal checkout button to, to their websites in order to kind of make the two-sided network work. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's great insight. Lisa, it's great to have you back. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kelly. Lisa Ellis of Moffitt Nathanson. Coming up, Peloton, Zoom, and Netflix get all the attention, but there's one under-the-radar stay-at-home stock that's outperforming all of them by a lot. We'll tell you what it is. Plus, Apple may be ditching Intel's chips, but investors aren't ditching the stock. We'll dig into that. And remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a couple. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course. Get the limited-time offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's check on these markets where technology is leading the way once again today. And major averages are pretty much all near session highs. The Dow up 270. It's about 20 points off its high right now. 1% gain. Same for the S&P. It's up 34 to about 31.50. The Nasdaq session highs up 1%, 10,207. And you can see behind me that technology is the outperforming sector in the market today, just like we saw yesterday. Technology is up 1.7%. Consumer discretionary, which includes a lot of those tech-heavy names that we think of, up 1.5%. Communication services, same story, up 1.5%. So the theme here, you can call it positive. You can maybe call it not so much. We were speaking at the top of the hour with our market guests who say this could be the strength of the stay-at-home trade as investors are becoming a little more anxious about the rise in COVID cases we've seen in some states. Let's check in on some of the individual movers that we have today as well. And shares of Etsy are among them. RBC raised its price target on the stock to 117. It's just under 103 today. RBC is expecting its client acquisition to remain historically high on e-commerce strength. That's a nearly 7% gain for Etsy today. Take a look at IBB as well. That's the biotech ETF, and it is at an all-time high. It's at more than 40% in the past three months, up 1.3%. 
percent today. Moderna, one of the big winners in this ETF. It's more than doubled on hopes for its COVID vaccine. And shares of Beyond Meat, well, they're lower today. Why? Competitor Impossible Foods debuting the Impossible Breakfast Sandwich in Starbucks stores today. Now, Starbucks does also carry some of Beyond Meat's offerings, but still, Beyond Investors sending the shares down 3.5% to a still pretty impressive 154. And don't miss Impossible Foods CEO on Mad Money with Jim Cramer tonight. That'll be Pat Brown around 6 p.m. Eastern time. Don't miss it. Let's get to Rahel Solomon now for our CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Here is your CNBC News update at this hour. Let's start in Georgia. For the funeral for Rayshard Brooks is now underway in Atlanta. A 27-year-old man was shot and killed by a police officer earlier this month after grabbing that officer's taser and attempting to run away. To Texas now, Children's Hospital in Houston is now admitting adult patients. This is to expand the state's hospital capacity as virus cases there continue to surge. COVID-19 hospitalizations in the state have more than doubled in the last month. They're also nearly three times higher in that Houston area. Google employees are calling on the tech giant to stop selling its technology to police departments. For more on the internal petition signed by more than 1,100 employees, you can head to our website, cnbc.com. And four authors have resigned from the U.K. writing agency that represents J.K. Rowling after controversial comments the Harry Potter creator made on transgender issues. The authors say that they're leaving to stand in solidarity with the LGBTQIA community. And you are now up to date. That is the CNBC News update at this hour. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thanks very much. Stocks are rallying again this week, betting on a stronger economy as more businesses reopen. But corporate debt has been accelerating as companies battle the pandemic. Oxford Economics estimates that corporate debt to GDP ratio could hit 95 percent of GDP this year in advanced economies. And they say that poses a risk to growth. With me now is Adam Slater, the lead economist at Oxford Economics. And Adam, it's great to have you. Why is it a risk to growth? Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, um, there is evidence from a variety of international studies that as we move higher in terms of corporate debt ratios, we start to have weaker investment and weaker GDP growth. There are some uh, estimates that would suggest, for example, that the kind of rise in aggregate corporate debt to GDP in the advanced economies that you just mentioned of around 10 percent of GDP could cut long-term growth by as much as 0.2% per year. Um, That's uh, an aggregate effect. I think there are other issues as well. Um, I think we are concerned, for example, that the coronavirus crisis may crystallize some pre-existing risks in the corporate debt sphere in areas like low-rated debt, Mm -hmm. uh, commercial real estate. And it might also lead to some new concentrations of risky debt Um, One area that we're particularly concerned about is small firms who may in some cases be borrowing substantially for the first time uh, as an attempt to get over the pocket sales caused by the coronavirus. It seems pretty obvious to me that if companies have to pay their debt back, they're not going to be investing, you know, raising wages, whatever the other uses that they would typically use their capital for would be. Um, and that, that has to be some kind of break on growth. Now, the break that you've described isn't huge. We're talking about two tenths of percent uh, per year, but we're in a pretty low growth environment as it is. So, it, so it's not great. What could governments do if they wanted to try to accelerate this balance sheet cleaning program? I mean, how can we get through this more quickly to try to get back to the other side of it? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, I think this is something we are concerned about, that we move 
when this crisis is over, into a period of extended balance sheet cleanup by corporates, which will uh, weigh on investment over a long period. And, and how to prevent that? Well, there may be a couple of possibilities. One issue you could look at would be whether or not there's be changes to the tax code, uh, which could accelerate that process uh, and encourage investment to stay up. That will be one issue. Uh, levels of taxation more generally could be reduced uh, for the corporate sector. Um, and conceivably, governments could look at other ways of lowering other business costs so that the increased uh, amount of debt service that firms will have to pay will be uh, offset, if you like, by reduced outlays in other areas. So I think that's the sort of thing people may have to look for. Governments, I think, are also going to have to be very wary of um, moving to tighten up fiscal policy, mm -hmm. even though budget deficits are going to grow rapidly this year. Um, they need to be very wary about tightening that up again in the years after the coronavirus crisis subsides, uh, because by doing so, you could actually accentuate what we think is already a, a risky yeah. Uh, situation. Yeah. One more question on this. I mean, you said that if they want to help businesses clean up their balance sheets, you could reduce taxes or lower business costs. I mean, that seems like a pipe dream in most advanced economies. I don't hear a lot of politicians successfully running for office on that platform, maybe save President Trump. And you, his opponent, Joe Biden, is leading in the polls right now. He would raise the corporate tax rate. So it sounds like you're implying, I don't mean to make this political, but it sounds like if anything, the environment for businesses is going to get more difficult, not less so. Well, that's a possibility, of course, and I can't comment on that uh, in terms of the detail of what people might or might not do in office. But um, yes, I mean, obviously, if you make the situation more difficult for business, then you, other things equal, you risk uh, making this balance sheet clean up problem worse. I mean, if you help the household sector uh, and thereby boost demand for companies' products, you may be able to help the corporate sector indirectly that way, and that mm. might be politically more palatable, I suppose. Yeah, no, I think we're seeing that already. I think that's exactly what's playing out. Adam, thanks very much. It's good to have you. Thank you very much. Adam Slater with Oxford Economics. Coming up, the $600 question. As we were just discussing, a debate has started on the merits of extending the extra unemployment payments. We'll look at the math and the external factors at play in this push and pull. Plus, tech giants are speaking out against the president's new executive order limiting immigration. We'll look at the consequences for Silicon Valley. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange, where markets are near session highs right now. During Apple's developers conference yesterday, the company announced that future Macs will use Apple chips instead of Intel. The news didn't seem to bother Intel investors too much. That stock closed higher yesterday, despite the news, and it's rebounded 38 percent from its 52-week low. Intel now sports a dividend yield of about 2.2 percent. While that doesn't seem huge, it is better than most of its tech competitors, and it's one of the cheaper names in the field with a forward P.E. of about 13. Compare that to Apple's 27 and Microsoft's 34. Now, tensions between big tech and the president are rising once again following an executive order further restricting immigration, including visas most commonly used by Silicon Valley workers. Josh Lipton joins me now with the latest on that. Josh? So, Kelly, it's a big public fight now with President Donald Trump, as you mentioned there, signing an executive order that would suspend 
foreign work visas and green cards in certain categories, including high-skilled H-1B visas. The order is set to take effect tomorrow and extend through the end of the year. The administration says this is about protecting American workers now unemployed due to the pandemic and economic lockdowns, saying American workers compete against foreign nationals for jobs in every sector of our economy. I checked in with the Migration Policy Institute. They're estimating that these restrictions would block about 325,000 foreign workers and green card applicants and their dependents. The administration reportedly puts the number closer to 525,000. Tech relies a lot on foreign-born workers. For example, in 2019 alone, Amazon was approved to hire more than 3,500 workers through the H-1B program. Google, more than 2,700. And as for Microsoft, more than 1,700. So no surprise, many tech execs are not happy. Apple's Tim Cook tweeting that he was, in his words, deeply disappointed by this proclamation, while Google's Sundar Pichai says that his company will continue standing with immigrants. Kelly, back to you. Is there any wiggle room on this issue, Josh? It's, you know, it sounds like that order was effective immediately. Yeah, so I, I mentioned that I checked in with the, the folks at the Migration Policy Institute, Kelly, in terms of wiggle room, I, they flat out think you're going to have a fight. There will be legal challenges, they say, coming at the individual level and the corporate level. Their point is, you know, these companies just put too much um, money and time into these programs. They expect a certain number of workers. They have a timetable. They can't allow that to just be thrown up. So they would expect legal challenges, Kelly, here. At the same time, those numbers you mentioned, about 2,700 or so, I mean, those aren't huge given that these workforces are often tens, if not, probably not hundreds of thousands unless you include contractors, but certainly in the tens of thousands for each company, right? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I think that um, the administration has made it clear in that executive order that this has been this unprecedented historic pandemic, that the economy has taken this big hit, and that any lever they can pull um, to try to help the labor force rebound, they're going to do it. I think these tech companies believe, um, while maybe relatively small, these are talented workers from all around the world they need. They want these men and women. They're critical, they believe, to helping them create and develop and sell um, their, their goods, their services. Um, and their other point is, if you don't let them into this country, they're just going to go someplace else. And that, they'll ask, is that good for, for uh, the country, for the national security, if, if, these, if these workers go and just set up shop in another Silicon Valley outside the United States? So legal challenges, thought, are coming. We'll, we'll see how it shakes out, Kelly. Yeah, fair enough. Josh, thanks so much. Josh Lipton with the very latest there. Coming up, the under-the-radar stay-at-home trade that's been outperforming big time. And Major League Baseball has a new reopening plan. Also, California saying no to online gambling. All that and more in today's edition of Rapid Fire next. And it's not just the big tech names hitting all-time highs today. Take a look at a few others as well. Tractor Supply, Spotify, Vertex, and Carvana all hitting fresh highs. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back, she said. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire, and here to break down the headlines are Dominic Chu, Contessa Brewer, and Eric Chemi. Welcome, one and all. Um, first up, there's no doubt the stay-at-home trade has been working, especially lately. Since the March low, Peloton's up 140%, Zoom's up 160%, Netflix up 31%. And while those names get a lot of attention, take a look at Fastly. That's our secret stock today. It's up 347%. If you're not familiar with it, they help get content into your home, including streaming. 
And also, guys, Peloton today getting a new street high price target of $70. Dom, what do you make of it? I, I don't know what to make of it right now. So, so part of me is like, yeah, this is great and this is fantastic. We know the thesis. We know why traders and investors wanted to get into it, especially at the COVID-19 lows back in March. The reason why was because these are beneficiaries if things were going to get bad with regard to stay at home, work from home and everything else. What I find absolutely curious right now is why when things are arguably getting better, the economy is somewhat getting back going again, that these stocks continue to make these new highs and have the momentum that they have. Yes, we know that there are certain hotspots in America that are seeing a resurgence in COVID-19 cases, infections, hospitalizations. Still, though, the idea that these types of stocks are doing well, even in an environment where COVID-19 isn't as much of a threat as it was theoretically, right. two or three months ago, speaks volumes to the kinds of trades that are happening right no, now. No, I think it's super interesting. And Contessa, I'm curious if you think Peloton has real lasting power. Why isn't this, you know, everyone's getting one right now. I get that. But why isn't this going to be Bowflex in five or 10 years time? I think it's a great point. And not only that, consider what happens when people get over their urgent fear of public places and the germs out there. And we see gyms reopening what you're going to have is Peloton up against really difficult sales comps next year, for instance, combined with people returning to the gym. So the real question is, does this have staying power? Are you going to continue to see new customers coming at it? In terms of Zoom, though, I got to say, look, you're branding five and six-year-olds early on in the use of Zoom. It's a name brand that these <laughs> kids are going to grow up with. And it's not like companies are going to stop being under margin pressure. They're gonna feel like, hey, why are we spending millions of dollars on rent when we know we can successfully have people at least transitioning into more work from home? I think Zoom has staying power over the long haul. All right, Eric, I mean, you were never a Bowflex guy, right? All these things are fads. You can't think that people are gonna keep doing the same thing for months and months and years and years to go. That repetitive nature on the bike, you think about these workers on Zoom, they're tired of it. I wouldn't get too caught up in these all-time highs right now. You gotta look for a pullback. I agree. Let's talk a little bit about Major League Baseball. This is making some big headlines. It's set to finally impose an abridged 2020 season after a brutal dispute with its players' union. This is after they had to close training facilities across Florida and Arizona. The Phillies confirmed eight positive tests and cases are spiking across the country. So the NBA and other pro sports leagues are facing some backlash from their athletes. So, Eric, what's the deal with the, so baseball is going to be a 60 game season? And I guess the guys will at least get paid. But this got to be the worst case scenario for the owners. Right. Right. I mean, because they're going to lose money if no one's in the stands. I'm just thinking about when we had Ricketts on the other day. Well, so 60 games, this is the owners, the commissioner saying unilaterally, you're playing 60 games. That's what it is. They had gone back and forth on these negotiations. They couldn't come to an agreement. This is not an agreed solution. This is just the commissioner dictating the season is 60 games. You need to show up now. Um, yeah, a lot of negotiations that they failed. These two sides, they really don't like each other. The interesting thing is going to be, will fans come? Will they want to watch these games on TV, of course, not in, in the stadium? Yeah, the owners do lose money because there are no fans paying for those tickets. So that's why they wanted to keep it to not that many games. Remember, 60 games is out of 162. Yeah. So this is very, very few games. Everyone will get their prorated salary of about 37%. So that's <laughs> not a lot of money relative to what you thought you'd make this year. Well, Contessa, why are you shaking your head? 
you're worried about a bunch of billionaire baseball team owners losing some money. They're going back to the players. Some of these guys don't have a long career ahead of them. In fact, what if you're one of the players and this is your only professional season? This is your only chance to get to make money. And these owners are coming to them and saying, hey, guys, we don't have people coming into the stadiums right now. So we want you to take a pay cut. What dumb. I don't get that. What and, dumb. They're the, and they're the ones taking a health risk. Uh, so I, I've heard all these points being made. The conversations that I've had outside of the office with sports fans center a little bit more around whether or not baseball's reputation takes a hit from this, given the dynamic that's played out between players, owners, and the league management. Is this something that they can bounce back from? Or does this work out to be like, hey, how much time does it take for them to come back from a strike season? Say something like that. Is there reputational damage? And I think a lot, a lot of people out there are saying, you know what? I, may, I, I might not just watch as much baseball as I used to. Well, and we, I, we have to move on, but I want to make one point of this, Eric, because you pointed out the ratings for the Belmont over the weekend were not very good. And this was there was no NASCAR on. There were no other sports there was nothing on. on. There was nothing just, on. The everyone Belmont. was betting on live sports. And I just wonder, is has it lost some allure? I don't know. Well, that's the thing. So everyone thought that live sports coming back to TV, everyone's going to be so excited. They're going to want to watch. They're going to want to bet. Those Belmont ratings were very, very, very low. Not not as low as since we've seen since the 90s. So if all of a sudden people get to go outside this summer, maybe they're saying, I'm going to go outside rather than sit here and watch a baseball game on mm. TV. So it'll be interesting to see what actually happens. Definitely. No, I think that's yeah. going to be a really interesting point. All right. Speaking of sports, people are looking to gamble on something these days. And they're betting on the future of gambling itself. Retail investors are piling into the Roundhill Sports Betting and iGaming ETF. It's named BETS, B-E-T-Z. And it's amassed over $77 million in assets in just three short weeks. Most ETFs, Dom, as you know, take at least three years to reach that benchmark. If at all, BETS is up 3% today. And this, to me, also fits into this whole idea of people who don't have sports to bet on but want to get in the market. Maybe this is a nice, you know, entry point. I mean, it, there are so many meta elements to this, this, this entire kind of sports ETF. ETF sports betting type situation. But I mean, it goes to along what Eric was talking about. There is a kind of debate playing out right now whether or not sports gambling will be the future. I think the general consensus right now is yes, it's got a very bright one. But to your point, for an ETF that just started to take in this kind of money, this is a, the classic definition of striking while the iron is hot. There are so many people buzzing about companies like DraftKings and anybody tied to the sports ecosystem that if there is really a future for live sports, sports and for doing stuff that's maybe not in the stadium itself, maybe these types of companies do really well. But I would say $77 million still makes it very small in the terms of the yes. ETF world. Yes, we normally wouldn't even you know mention it. It's, it's so small. Contessa, also we had California not approve sports betting on its ballot. You know, there, there are a couple different things going on here. But again, as people try to figure out what they want to bet on, Again, you have an ETF. You either you can bet on the games themselves or if you're in California, maybe you can. You can bet on but the ETF. I would, yeah, the thing about California is for now they've pulled this bill off. That's hard lobbying by California's tribes who want to see sports betting happen, but they want to limit it to bricks and mortar on their land so that they're the beneficiaries of the betting. So for now, who benefits? The uh, the casinos in Nevada yeah. benefit because you can just cross the border into Nevada and bet there. The other thing about this ETF is it's a little like betting on all the ponies on a race. Uh, when we see the legalization of sports betting adopted state by state, now more than 20 states are on that path, you're going to see real winners and losers. Things will shake out. So this is a little bit like saying, I don't know who's going to be the big winner and 
and the and the loser here. So I'm going to spread my money out and bet on all of them. Yeah, no, but that's a great point about how it will help the physical casinos in uh, Las Vegas for now, certainly. All right. Finally, the entire educational paradigm in America has been flipped on its head, especially the college application process. Now, all eight Ivy League schools will temporarily not require standardized testing next year. They follow Caltech and Stanford. The University of California uh, recently announced that it will phase out the SAT and ACT permanently. This affects at least two million students a year. What do you guys, Eric, what do you make of this? I mean, as someone who uh, really focused on getting good grades and good test scores as a kid, I, I don't know what kind of world we're living in now. I mean, I got two sons at home. I don't know what I would tell them. <laughs> oh, 20 years from now, just do whatever the hell you want, because apparently tests don't matter, grades don't matter. So I mean, to me, this looks like a form of societal matter, right? breakdown. I don't know. I mean, I mean, it, there's a lot of reasons. Maybe here. they one matter them, more. One of them is, okay, we think these tests are unfair because of certain groups. They, they underperform on the test. Another version this year is, well, we can't get access to tests. So there's a lot of issues being conflated here. Yeah. But remember, the Ivy League, everyone thinks the Ivy League is some fancy set of educational institutions. They're an athletic conference. They are no different than the Pac-10, Pac-12, Big Ten, SEC. They are an athletic conference. They're a little harder but, to get into. Oh, right, please. Tell the moms that whose kids get into Harvard. But, but remember, remember, so they're still an athletic conference, and for certain NCAA regulations, you need to meet certain SAT requirements to offset GPA numbers. So if you're an athlete, this doesn't necessarily apply to you. So Weird. something to think about. All right, Contessa, go ahead. Well, I'm just, I mean, I, I think that you can't really just say it's an athletic conference because if you're a mom and your kid gets into an Ivy League school, you're proud of that, regardless <laughs> of whether they have the SAT scores to do it. Well, but what, then what's it going to, GPA? What are the other, do, how are, is it going to be a wide basket, Dom? What are they looking at? What are the criteria now? Listen, I, I think that what this is going to do is play a lot more into putting the onus on the admissions committees to figure out what types of factors they're going to look at. As a guy who spent a lot of time at Princeton Reviews for test prep for college, I can tell you right now that it was a huge focus for me. I don't know what it'll be to Eric's point for my daughter coming up, so we'll see. I know. A, a whole new world. <laughs> uh, Dom, Contessa, and Eric, thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. And that does it for Rapid Fire today. Coming up, housing holds strong. New home sales in May blowing estimates out of the water. We'll dig into the data next. As we head to break, take a look at United and American Airlines. Both lower today after United launched a private offering of $3 billion in secure debt. American announced a secondary stock offering in addition to a billion dollars in convertible notes. Both carriers are trying desperately to raise capital. American shares are down 7% today. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. May's new home sales were a blowout, climbing 16% versus a 2% estimate. The median sales price of a new house also climbed to $317,900. And there was a big jump in the number of houses sold without even yet being started. All the news sending the home builder ETF higher, the XHB, up about 1.5% today, coming off a pretty strong run. Still ahead, it's unemployment on steroids, and it may be set to conclude at the end of next month. While many recipients are making more than their original wages, they may not stay out of the workforce long term. We'll have the economic implications of that next. Welcome back. Will people be deterred from returning to work if Congress extends a special unemployment benefit set to expire at the end of this month? It's a $600 question. Let's ask Steve Leisman for more. Steve? Kelly, thanks. Yeah, it's a critical debate. Congress is thinking about it, and it really holds the fate of millions of Americans who are wondering 
Uh, what happens to that extra $600 benefit once it runs out at the end of July? On the one hand, you don't want to get rid of a benefit that's really helped prop up the economy, retail sales, uh, helped with poverty levels. Uh, on the other hand, you got to get the incentives right in terms of getting people back to work. This map shows the extent of the problem, such as it may exist. Uh, it shows uh, from work from University of Chicago researchers that in every state, the benefit plus the existing unemployment benefits is greater than the median wage. The result is that two-thirds of workers, these researchers estimate, are probably getting more than they did when they worked. At the same time, if you were to look at another map, which we don't have right now, but I tell you it's true, it shows little correlation between these extra benefits and higher unemployment rate. It just hasn't really shown up in the data. And the reason might be is that it takes more than a couple hundred extra dollars to keep people from going to work. Economists say, you know what? People want to work. They're concerned about getting their jobs back in a difficult economy. They want to get their benefits back, such as they may have them at their jobs. Some of them uh, may not go to work because their kids aren't in school yet because the schools aren't open. Finally, there are millions of people who didn't get benefits at all, even though they might have been entitled to them because uh, of the uh, problems at state unemployment offices. Okay. So Congress is thinking all about this, trying to figure out what to do when these things expire in July. Here are some of the proposals. Democrats want to continue the $600 bonus all the way into January. They want to, uh, Republicans want to provide a $450 return to work bonus. There's another proposal floating around to prorate the bonus to the state unemployment level. So it comes down as the state unemployment level comes down. Vice President Joe Biden likes the idea of increasing work sharing subsidies where you spread out the pain and reduce everybody's hours, let the government come in and subsidize it. Whatever the right answer here, Kelly, it's critical for both the duration and the slope of the recovery to get this benefit right. Yeah, that's for sure. Steve, stay right there for more on this. We're now joined by Stephanie Aronson. She's vice president and director of economic studies at the Brookings Institution. Stephanie, it's good to have you with us as well. What does your research say is the best way forward here? I mean, I think the thing we have to remember is that people are doing a very complicated calculus when they're deciding whether to go back to work during the pandemic. And the government also has a lot of objectives that they are trying to meet. So we want to boost the economy and reopen it. At the same time, we want people to uh, be safe and stay at home when uh, they can to help reduce the spread of the pandemic. And we want to provide stimulus for the economy so people have money to spend because the economy, you know, households have taken a huge income hit. And the benefits that have been provided, both the payments to households and the UI benefits, have done a very good job of replacing people's income. And there is evidence that, you know, retail sales are rebounding and people are beginning to spend again. And the question is sort of how can we achieve all of these goals in the way that makes the most sense? Do, Do you know what that answer is? I think that It's actually hard to achieve all these goals with only one tool. So right now we just have UI benefits. And I think the idea of adding additional payments to workers when they return to work makes sense. In a sense, there's a type of hazard pay. So right now, a lot of essential workers work from um, cannot work from home. They have to go into the office to be able to work. And these workers overwhelmingly 
are relatively low paid. The median pay for essential workers who typically cannot work uh, from home is about $30,000. And if we want these people to return to work, then I think it makes sense that we would pay them hazard pay in order to return to those jobs. In addition, because they do have to also balance what their family needs are, whether they have child care. And so I do think it's the case, and past research has shown, although the UI benefits do you know, discourage employment a little bit, they're really not the main factor that people are taking into consideration when they're trying to decide to uh, go right. back to work. So I think trying to accomplish all these goals only with UI benefits just doesn't make sense. Not only that, Steve, but the $600 level was basically set because our technology isn't good enough to just give people replacement pay <laughs> for what they were getting paid, right? The goal was just, hey, we'll, we'll pay you whatever you were making, but they just had to average things out across the country and say, on average, it'll be 600 more than, than jobless benefits pay. Absolutely. I mean, they've had four months now to fix these darn systems and get them right. You would think they'd be able to. I read a paper that said it takes one adjustment to make it right. This idea, Kelly, about prorating benefits to the unemployment rate of a given state makes sense, because what you're trying to do is calibrate helping people who can't find work with whatever incentive might be there to stay home, which I think, by the way, is is overstated. But I will say you do not want to have it too high. I've talked to most of the liberal economists I talk to think you can't leave it at 600. You have to bring it down. But try to bring it down in a humane and graduated way that calibrates it to the difficulty it might be of returning to work uh, or the difficulty in the job market. Yeah. And again, it's ironic we're talking about this at the same time. The president has floated the idea of perhaps more direct payments to households. So I think your point, Stephanie, is, is right on, that there needs to be multiple different tools here and not just one. We'll leave it there, folks. Thanks so much. Stephanie Aronson of Brookings Pleasure. and Steve Leisman uh, from here at CNBC. Uh, that does it for The Exchange today. Thanks so much for tuning in. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Go to cnbcmakeit.com slash courses to register now and learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course where experts share their secrets for a dynamic resume, coming across with confidence, what to wear, and more. For a limited time, save 50% with our introductory offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses.